This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Bible readings this morning coalesce around the theme of renewal, pointing us to the hope, the reality of restoration, resuscitation, even resurrection. This theme is timely. If you have been following along with the Lenten book we've been reading, Lent by Esau Macaulay, you'll know that the season of Lent is both a season of repentance, remorse over sin, but also a season of renewal of being renewed in our commitment to journey with Jesus, renewed in our uh, disposition toward obedience to God. And perhaps even it's a season of hungering for renewal. At this point of Lent, perhaps you feel defeated, dry and dusty because of your disciplines, your fasting. You long for renewal. Beyond the Lenten season, many of us desire renewal of some kind. We in life, we're wounded, we're doubting, we're tired and hard-pressed. We have a need for renewal in our faith, our trust in Jesus. Beyond our subjective, individual, corporate experience here at Church of the Cross, the world itself is in need of renewal. Yes, in the sense that all creation is groaning under the weight of sin and expectation of Jesus, but more particularly in our day, in our time. We live in a time of upheaval economically, socially, internationally, so much uncertainty. As I was fumbling around on Google trying to remember how to spell resuscitation, <laughs> the search engine kept suggesting autocorrecting to recession. <laughs> Perhaps a hint of the fears, concerns so many are experiencing in need of renewed hope and fresh vision. In this season, in our lives, at times such as this, the call upon the people of God is to be renewed in our faith, in our hope, in our love. That we ourselves might be made new in Jesus by the power of the Spirit, but also that we might be a people, a community of renewal for others. This is what Mother Kimberly talked about last week, extending the abundant life that Jesus alone offers. In an age of discouragement and uncertainty, when the temptation toward fatalism is acute, the call upon us as the church is to be renewed and to be a place and people of renewal for others. How might that actually happen? I'm not a very good cook, but recipes make the practice accessible to me. I like recipes. I like instructions. A few years ago, I was chatting with a fellow priest who was a few years ahead of me in serving at a church plant, like we were that back then. And this person, this priest, told me, the beauty of church planting, Peter, is there's no playbook. Nobody knows what to do. And I remember thinking, that's good news. <laughs> Maybe for you, but not for me. Show me the steps. Show me the recipe. Our readings this morning provide a certain recipe for renewal. A recipe of five ingredients for renewal in Christ individually and corporately that might define our lives. These five ingredients, which we'll move through in the next few minutes, can be listed in your mind or on your notes as you're, if you're taking them as talk, belief, waiting, word, and breath. 
Talk, belief, waiting, word, and breath. Ingredients of renewal. And this is not an exhaustive list. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about worship is the way through our situations, our episodes, our seasons of difficulty. But these elements are essential for our being built up in the life of God, the likeness of Jesus. And there isn't this specific order or priority like there sometimes are in recipes, right? Like you have to uh, put the milk in before the flour, whatever it is that you have to do. Rather, these ingredients are interwoven and together cultivate the abundant life in Jesus that we long after, for which we're made. So let's jump in. Five ingredients. The first ingredient is talk. If we are to know renewal, to be a people of renewal, we must be in conversation with the living God. Psalm 130 opens with the cry of the psalmist, Out of the deep have I called unto you, O Lord. From the place of distress, right? You do not want to be in the deep if you can avoid it. From the place even of judgment, the psalmist's move is to call unto the Lord to talk, to express their sadness, their lament, the needs that they are experiencing in a God-word direction. This is so very simple, so very elementary, and yet so profoundly difficult, isn't it? And our sophistication, our mastery in the world can make us to be dismissive of the simple act of talking to God of voicing our supplications because we're too distracted, too busy, because we don't know what to say, because we have things in our lives that make us feel ashamed, because we feel like we're terrible at praying. And the truth of the matter is, is you are bad at prayer because everybody is bad at prayer. But it's the kind of bad that only gets worse through inactivity. There are actions, actually, like throwing a baseball, for example, that if you do it with the wrong mechanics, if you do it with the wrong form, you're making things worse. Prayer is not like that. If your form is off, it's not like your jump shot, right? It will work still. If it is done in the name of Jesus, or in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your Godward talk is worthwhile. And even more than that, you have cheat sheets for prayer. The Psalms, the Book of Common Prayer. There's no plagiarism in the life of talking to God. The whole point of the Psalms, the whole point of the Book of Common Prayer is it's supposed to give you a script to fumble around in, to utilize when you're like, I don't have the words, I feel stupid, I don't know what to say. What did David say? What did the psalmist have to say? What did Thomas Cranmer or St. Augustine say? There's no plagiarism. And the whole of the Bible reveals to us that God's invitation, in fact, his command is that his people would speak to him. Whatever situation, whatever their past, whatever they've done, think of the garden. Adam and Eve are ashamed and terrified and God is asking, where are you? Don't hang up the phone. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, humble yourselves under God's hand that he could lift you in due time. Cast your anxiety on him, right? Throw it out there because he cares for you. 
Philippians 4, 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. This is the best part. As you do that, the peace of God that transcends, supersedes all understanding will guard your heart and mind. In every situation, Paul says, whoever you are, whatever you've done, there is no graduation, there's no disqualification from the school of prayer, from talking to God. However educated we are, however much money we have, the path toward renewal is the way of prayer, conversation with God. In this, Mary and Martha in John 11 are exemplars. From the depths of grief, they are quite uncensored in their engagement with Jesus. In tradition, Mary is understood to be as downright angry with Jesus. He shows up and she doesn't rush out to meet him. She's like, he can wait. But when she does encounter him, there's no preamble, right? At his feet, in tears, raging. If you had been here, things would have been different. That is bold speech. An expression of grief, confusion, and despair offered to God. The situation looks hopeless. Where have you been? Where is your goodness? Where are you doing the things that you promised to me? That kind of talk is invited speech by the living God. And it is an essential ingredient of our renewal. So many of us have questions. So many of us are encountering situations where we're like, I do not understand how you can be good. That is fodder for your renewal if it is offered to the Lord. He cares for you. He longs to hear from you, to commune with you. Offer your heart to him. Speak to the Lord. May we be a people who instinctually and in every situation direct our speech to God, our questions, our concerns, our praises, and our thanksgiving. Of course, the entire exercise of prayer, of talk with God, is predicated on certain ideas about him. That's where we come to the second ingredient, belief. Mary and Martha's questioning of Jesus assumes the belief that he could have done something. Our talk with God is based on the conviction that, I don't know, he exists, that he lives and moves, that he intercedes in the world. The cry in Psalm 130 is motivated by the belief that there is mercy with God that he's marked by kindness, that he does not hold against us the wrongs we have done. There's certain convictions. So Hebrews 11:6, it's without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I stumbled over my words there. I, I didn't say it's impossible to police God. It's impossible to please God. <laughs> we live in a moment of dissolving belief, beyond even specific religious belief. The very idea of being, there being a deposit of truth about almost anything is being called into question in our political discourse, online, throughout the world. We live in a remarkably cynical time where and truth claims are understood solely to be exercises of power, power plays. Our kids were recently watching the Pixar classic, again, Inside Out. 
And you have to have watched this movie for this illustration to make any sense. But there's a train in this child's brain that they have to catch, these characters. And the train is carrying these two piles of boxes, facts and opinions. And the, the train crashes, and the facts and the opinions get all mixed up. And it's hilarious because we understand that phenomenon. I mean, it doesn't happen to us, it happens to other people. We see it all the time, though. Facts and opinions mixed up. But it's important to remember that just because facts and opinions are so easily conflated in our own lives, it does not mean that facts don't exist in the world generally and when it comes to the character of the living God. And the path toward renewal in our lives, renewed faith, hope, and love, involves holding fast and even involves further growing in our sense of God's goodness, holiness, power, and beauty at work in history, at live in the world today. Notice in the gospel reading, John 11, verse 24, Martha responds to Jesus by saying, yes, I know the resurrection. This is my speculation, but I almost wonder if there's a sense of their like, do not give me the standard religious answer, right? Like, I know it. It's not going to cut the mustard today. But Jesus' response to her in care, in love, is to draw her to a fuller and more provocative conviction about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. What's abstract, what's far off to you, Martha, is alive in me. Lay hold of this truth. I want you to be careful here because I know so many of us come with wounds. We come with baggage. We come with experiences of hurt from the church, from people who we thought were teaching us the truth about who Jesus is. And as we come to grips with the things we've experienced, with the wounds that we have, there's this sense of question, right? Like, is the stuff that they taught me about Jesus even true? God, where were you in the midst of that? And I, your particular situation is precious. And I don't want to, like, paper over anything you've experienced. But what I do want to say is that, yes, Jesus is different, perhaps, than what you've experienced, different than what you've been hurt by. He is more than what you've heard. He's greater than what you've been wounded by. And the passage this morning, John 11, confirms to us that he is there in solidarity, in our weeping and in our mourning. Jesus weeps with Mary and Martha, but he calls them to this deeper, truer, fuller, and richer understanding of himself. And that, I want to implore you, is the path toward renewal. To not dissolve our beliefs, to not jettison them, but to hold fast and to grow in our convictions about the goodness of God, the truth of who Jesus was and is. The project of being renewed and offering renewal to the world around us is based on these specific convictions about God and his ways, about Jesus and his identity, about the presence of the Spirit. Think of what we will say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. These elements of historic orthodoxy are the very footing, the very hope we have of renewal. The truth of God's character, of his actions and presence in history, 
These are what makes joy, love, and goodness possible in sorrowful and insecure times. May we be a people who hold fast and even more grow and mature in these treasured convictions about Jesus and God that we have received. May we be a people of renewed belief. In the 17th century, Martin Luther, the famed reformer, wrote a hymn based on Psalm 130. And some of the lines from this hymn bridge this idea of belief and the next ingredient, waiting. In the third verse, Luther writes, from the depths of woe, his promised mercy is my fort, my comfort and my sweet support. Right? The, the truths about who God are, that is where I stand. That is where I find support and comfort. And then he writes, I wait for it with patience. This third ingredient is waiting, interwoven with talk and with conviction. One of the features of our reading in Ezekiel and John, as well as Psalm 130, is that prayer is depicted as a conversation, right? And conversation involves waiting, right? You have to finish your talk and let the other person speak and listen. Ezekiel encounters this as the Lord questions him and he responds and then listens. Mary and Martha have their say and then they hear Jesus engage them. Even the psalmist calls out from the depths all alone with the hope of his words being heard. He doesn't conceive of himself as just cathartingly putting it out there, calling out to the universe. There's this personal quality. There's this waiting for someone. My soul waits for the Lord more than watch, uh, a watchman for the morning. And how does a watchman, how does a sentry wait for the dawn, wait for the morning? Well, in the dark, right? In the depths of darkness, they keep waiting. When there's no sign of the morning, they're waiting. And they wait for a while. Patience is required. But they also wait with the certainty that God will come. The sun will rise. Most every recipe includes the ingredient of time. The dish, the meal are not instantaneous. That's fast food, right? I worked at McDonald's for a while when I was a teenager, and they were, when I first started, they were like, you can be up front with the customers or you can be in the back making product. And I was like, that's an interesting word. <laughs> There's no time involved. It's not food, it's product. <laughs> Our lives are informed by the expectation of immediacy. At our home, we just changed Wi-Fi providers, and so there's like a new router, and it's disrupted our Sonos speaker. And the other day, I was trying to make it work, and my initial response was one of impatient umbrage, right? Like, how dare this thing I've only enjoyed in the last few years not be at my fingertips when I want it? No capacity for waiting. For God's people, renewal involves ceding the initiative to God himself. It requires the humility of relinquishing our expectations regarding time, outcome to him. And trust that his timing, his purposes are better than our own. This too is so very difficult. Time and again, we see it in scripture. Think of Abraham and Sarah, the promise of God for a descendant. They're waiting. And they're like, you know who would help with this is Hagar. Let's exploit her. Let's take advantage of her and help God out will short-circuit the waiting. 
So often, it's our perception of the problems that we are experiencing that calls into question, that undermines our ability to wait for God. Psalm 130 begins in the depths and concludes in verse 8 with God's redemption of sin. I wonder if when the psalmist started and they're in the depths, if they were like, what I need is redemption from sin. Or if they were like, no, I need a paycheck. I need a reliable job. I need this specific material intervention. And God is obviously concerned with the deepest, most intimate details of our lives, the practical things that keep us up at night. That too is fodder for talk with God. That is an area where he is concerned for us. But his good purposes extend deeper than our material circumstances. His good purposes involve redemption from sin, restoration of his image in you, forgiveness and sanctification. These are the deeper matters of renewal that God longs to do among us. And our pathway toward new life, renewed life in and with Jesus, involves surrendering our agenda to his higher, deeper, smaller, and more subtle ways. This occurs in the Gospels. John 11, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, in the verses before our reading, Mary and Martha were calling out to Jesus like, he's sick, could you come here? This is important. But they wait then in the shadow of death for God's better and more glorious purposes. So often those who petition Jesus for healing first hear, your sins are forgiven. They and we must wait that we might experience a fuller, grander renewal than we could ask or imagine. Our capacity to wait for the Lord often takes expression with our capacity for stillness and silence, with our ability to listen to others, takes the form of our ability to submit ourselves, to discern with others the leading of the Lord, to not draw into individualism, but to submit ourselves to the people God has placed around us. May we be a people who linger and wait in humility, prioritizing God's time and purposes above our own. And how do we come to know the purposes of God? That is a matter of the word, our fourth ingredient. In Ezekiel 37, the answer to the question, can these bones live? is only realized through the proclamation of God's word. Ezekiel's commanded to prophesy the word over these dry and dusty bones. There are no ears, right? There's no ears. He doesn't say there were dry and dusty ears just waiting for the word. There's a pile of bones in the middle of this valley. One writer, Robert Jensen, comments, personhood has been eradicated in this valley. There's just nondescript bones. And somehow, the word of God, the God who speaks to things that are not, accomplishes something in this valley. Lifeless and dead things in the hearing of the word are renewed. At the coronation of Elizabeth II in Great Britain, there was a moment in which a copy of the Bible was presented to the young queen. And at the moment of its presentation, these words were spoken about the Bible. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. That is a statement worth chewing on. Here is wisdom. 
Here's what you need to be guided in life. Here is the royal law over and above every human precept. Here are the lively oracles, a living thing. It's through the wisdom, law, and living word of God by which the people of God are renewed. In the wisdom and law of God, we receive what Walter Brueggemann has called an alternative reading of reality, distinct from the lenses of our culture and our world, spectacles through which we see creation, God, ourselves, rightly and truly, so often in unexpected ways. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is an ode to the gift of God's law, a lamp to our feet, illuminating the path, the vehicle by which we are guided into a life that is truly renewed. And Jesus, in his final prayer over the disciples in John 17, petitions the the Father for his followers. He says, make them holy in your truth. Your word is truth. It's in the reading, the inwardly digesting of the Bible, that our hearts and minds are steeped in the truth by which our imaginations are shaped and cultivated in reality. In a world of distortion and lies, so susceptible to deception as we are, holding to the wisdom, the law of God, his reading of reality, the true reading of reality, is essential for the renewal of our faith, hope, and love. It's only by the word of God, our readings this morning are an example of this, that we even have a true vision of what renewal and flourishing look like, of what the good and true human life is. But more than just a deposit of information, good as that is, the word of God, as we heard in that coronation phrase, is lively, alive and giving life, uniquely so. It's an active thing. This is an article of faith in Christian history. I don't have time to go into this presupposition, but it is there in Christian history. And some of you have experienced this, the active and living nature of God's word. I had this experience in a small way this week at a difficult time for me, midweek, in sequence over evening prayer one night and morning prayer the next day, I read Psalm 55, 56, and 57. And as I reflected on the words of the psalmist, words of grief, expressing the heaviness my own heart felt, as well as the call for God to be merciful and the declarations of trust in his goodness. I could perceptibly feel my own heart, my own mind shifting, bending in accordance with the truth, being renewed by the truth of God's awareness of me, of his loving and compassionate disposition, of his reliability in all things. I was being renewed. Now, does that perception happen every time I crack open the Bible? Certainly not. Like the genealogies, the book of Judges, that's some tough slogging people. (laughs) But as we act in faith, and as we take a posture of reception before the living word of the living God, we can and are daily renewed, daily restored. This is an area of growth For Christians of my vintage, of our generation, this is an area of growth for our community. We long for renewal and new life in Christ. Let's not neglect the gift that we have received in the wisdom, the law, the lively oracles of God in the Bible. And of course, like Ezekiel, who obeys this crazy command, let us not be merely hearers of the word, but doers as well.
Now, were we to leave things there, we might be left with the impression that the work of renewal is fundamentally our own task. Nobody's going to get in shape unless I put the work in. I do my work. And I do this morning want to emphasize for us that God has shown us the path toward growth in faith, hope, and love in him. Part of maturity is laying hold of the means of grace that God has provided, the the ingredients that he's given, utilizing them. But the vision of Ezekiel reminds us that the ultimate work of new life is the work of the Spirit, the breath of God, our final and most essential ingredient. It's only by the breath of God that dead things are brought to life. The ingredients outlined this morning are a means of participation in and with the Spirit. Whether they're prayer or engagement with Scripture, waiting on the Lord. The Spirit who makes alive, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead at work in our mortal bodies. Ultimately, the work of new life is a work of God's intention. Our hope is not in our capacity to pray enough, to know enough, but in God's intention to bless. God's prerogative to bring to life we who are dead in sin, dusty in despair, dry in our distracted worrying. It is God's desire this morning that you be renewed in the likeness of Jesus. The word spoken over Lazarus is spoken over you. Come forth. Be built up in faith, hope, and love. Be sent out as an agent of renewal by the very breath of the living God. Because our trust is there with the living and moving spirit of God. Let our recipe of renewal be marked most clearly by a call upon that spirit. Jesus' spirit to breathe on us. Like Ezekiel, let us call to the breath of God. Let us call forth his movement in our lives among us as his people. That we would come forth. That we would leave our grave clothes behind. And that the indestructible life of Jesus Christ lay hold of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before we move to the creed, let me pray for us. Gracious God, you have shown us the good path that you call us to. You've given us wisdom. And would we be a people submitted to your word, engaging you in your word? Would we be a people of prayer, a people who wait for you, O Lord, who submit ourselves and our agenda to you, God? Would these activities, these actions truly and fully mark us out? But we recognize, even as we prayed earlier today, our wills are unruly, our hearts and minds are marked by sin, our effort is weak and falters. And so we say, come Holy Spirit, come breath of God, you who hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation, you who resurrected the 
body of Jesus Christ to new and indestructible life, would you work now in and among us, O Lord? Bring renewal, enliven our hearts and our minds to lay full, fully hold of the abundant life that you have for us. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit. Breathe on us, breath of God, we pray. Just in the silence, Lord, if there is a word, an image in any way you might desire to speak to your people, we pause and we wait. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence among us. Come, Holy Spirit, more fully. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.